there. Welcome to We've Been Had, a song-by-song walk through the songs of Uncle Tupelo. I am Keith Billy. And I'm Michael Diamond. <laughs> no, you're Clarence. Ah, oh, uh, my name's Clarence. Okay, like, putting everything else aside, like, I've been reading the Beastie Boys book. Um, and so, if I don't, at some point in this show, just devolve into, like, railing against whack MCs, it's going to be a triumph of concentration. Uh, I, you know, it'll be a yeoman's effort, but I think you can do it. Uh, this, we shall see. Assuming we let the whack MCs off the hook, it's uh, the big night tonight. We are busting into a new album, March 16th through 20th, 1992, which I don't know about you. I'm just going to call March the rest of the way. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good uh, a good edit for clarity. I, you know, like my, my approach is like I can't remember anyone's birthdays, like even in, you know, most of my friends as kids, I have no idea when they were born. I'm not going to remember dates for Uncle Tupelo. Uh, priorities. I think the important thing is that it was recorded in a very short period of time. Yes. That's the, that's the takeaway. That, you know, okay, we'll come back to that. Yeah. There's an interesting thing with that. Uh, songs we're going to hit tonight, Grindstone, Coal Miners, and Wait Up. But I figure, you know, new album, we should like lay some groundwork. Um so yeah, this is the folk album. This is yeah, they're getting hosed by hosed by the label, not getting royalties. They said, fuck you then. We're making a folk album. That's right. It's the Neil Young tactic. <laughs> yeah. Like, which I don't know. That's gotta feel great to be able to do that. Yeah, it is it is interesting too that they like they, they wrote they recorded a bunch of songs about sticking it to the man on this album. You know, I had somehow never put that last little bit together. But that's fantastic. Uh, you know, I love that they were egged on by this, uh, egged on with all this by Peter Buck, who is a, a fan of the band. And like Peter Buck rules. I yeah, love Peter he, Buck. You let him stay at their his house, right? Stately Buck Manor to yeah. save money. I just, I love like, I don't know, like REM. You know, so Uncle Tupelo was the band that like dominated how much, you know, they were the center of my musical universe for a long time, but R.E.M. was that first. R.E.M. was like the first big, like, nutso band for me. Um, and honestly, Peter Buck being involved in this was part of what originally made me think, like, oh, well, Uncle Tupelo, yeah, if Peter Buck likes them, they must be. I don't know, it's just, it's so cool to me that he, A, like, consistently seemed to be having fun the entire way through R.E.M., um, and B, like, actually used his platform to, like, champion up-and-coming bands. Yeah, and it, it can't be easy to be a, a glass-half-full guy with Michael Stipe creeping around. Exactly. That uh, Well, I loved the, uh, the bit in Tweedy's book where he's talking about, you know, he rolls into Athens and he's trying to find Peter Buck and he goes to the bar and he sees Michael Stipe and he's like, hey, Michael, uh, you know where Peter is? And Stipe just, like, and cuts him down. It's like, I'm not Peter's keeper. Like, sorry. Yeah. You've been in a band with a guy for 20 years. You might, maybe you have his phone number. Yeah. I don't know. Call me crazy. I don't know. But, uh, one, I don't, did you, uh, you know, I don't know where sugar falls in the, in your, in your chronology, but, uh, engineered by David Barbie. Uh, yeah, uh, totally. From sugar. How wild is that? Yeah. Like it all, everything ties together here. It's. It, I don't know if you if you looked through. Like, I was just curious what other stuff David Barbie has engineered or produced. I didn't. 
he's he, he's like carved out a niche as the as the like alt country guy. He's done most really? of the drive by trucker albums. Really? Yeah. Wild. So I I would imagine those two things are correlated. That you know, they liked they liked what he did on this album and decided to to utilize him. Yeah. I that's that's a good pull. I didn't even didn't even think to look at that. I just kind of like with in his case and the other guy from Sugar. I just kind of imagined them like fading off into office jobs after Bob Mold got tired of them and selected a totally different three piece to tour with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's cold. Um, and so I don't know if this is true or not, but this was on the Wikipedia article that uh, Hydorn had actually announced that he wanted to leave the band. I. I've definitely read that in other places too. But he got so fired up about the opportunity to work with Peter Buck that he he said he'd stick around for this album. Well, I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah, probably. And, and it's not like he had to work too hard. It's either. true. It's true. What are you doing between March 16th and 20th? <laughs> Anything on your calendar? You feel like playing on three songs over <laughs> <Yeah>. the course. <laughs> I suppose I didn't. I didn't even think about that. It was just like it was like it wasn't even a working vacation for him. It was just. A chance to hang out at Peter Buck's house. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail, but I just I've got a note that I wanted to like acknowledge up front that Buck's production. I like I just I love the way he produces this album, and it's weird because like REM at that point was getting into a period of like where I didn't like the way their records were put together. So is it is it like automatic for the people era REM yeah. or Monster or what? It's right before right around automatic for the people okay and then yeah into monster and yeah and it's weird because monster is supposed to be the one that was like for buck um and it i i it sounds like ass yeah it's got kind of the the sound of it's got kind of a sugarish vibe to it so yeah. maybe he likes maybe that's why uh david barbie is the engineer yeah i you've got me curious just about like the breadth of barbie's Arby's production career now. Just imagine trying to explore that without the internet. Yes, exactly. Like, what <sighs> What would you even do? But you'd look at a lot of, well, <laughs> you'd look at a lot of liner notes. Then you would have endless fighty arguments with, you know, your friends, people at music stores, people at shows. I feel like this way is better. Yes, I think, I think so. Oh, one other thing I had written down here that I just like, I, I've wanted to get this off my chest since we started the show. Like finally we're at March. I can do this. Um, the, the most just like groaner line I've ever heard Jeff Tweedy say in any context. Um, this is from Greg Cott's book and I don't, I can't remember if Tweedy said this directly to Cott or if, Cot was quoting him, but you know, from a def another interview, but Tweedy's talking about March and he says something along the lines of, yeah, that acoustic folk album. If you think about it, I think it was the loudest album we ever did. And that's just so like, let me give you a quote. Yeah. in a, in a really like factually dubious quote. Oh man. But is it? He's challenging your challenging your perceptions, man. Of loud? <laughs> Their truth is so loud. 
So, I mean, I, I actually had this this written down for a, a different a different song to talk about, but maybe it makes sense to talk about here. I, I kind of think that they they've sort of adapted their their kind of loud, quiet, loud, or on off structure, or kind of reworked it on yep. this album as a function of tempo. Yes. So, like, you know, yeah. instead of getting loud and then quiet, like they kind of they really do a good job of of like establishing a cadence for the song yeah, and then doing some kind of intermediary thing to, to really change up that tempo. Totally agree. I was, I was thinking the same exact thing. Uh, yeah. Um, and along those lines, should we yeah. kick into grindstone? Let's do it. Okay, Grindstone. That is a great fucking opening song for a band that always knew how to open how to open an album. That's a tone setter, that's for sure. It, uh, it's interesting to me that like, you know, you just hear like, well, this is an acoustic song, and it's easy to think, well, then it's really simple. And some of these songs on this album are like really simple. There's actually a ton going on with this one. There's you know, if you sit down and listen, there are separate bass, drums, at least two guitars, and then a pedal steel being played by John Keane. Um, you know, they've got like the different tempos that you're talking about. I mean, this is for a simple acoustic folk song. There's kind of a lot of moving parts bouncing around here. Yeah, I, I really like the the kind of delicate pedal steel yeah. pieces that weave together the weave together the vocal sections yeah like it's a really cool effect it would be really this is one of those recordings where it'd be really neat if you could get the like isolated tracks yes. of just the uh, i mean i guess you could just listen for them it's not it's not that heavily produced but it would just be neat to hear that kind of played in its entirety that that sort of part that goes in between the in between the verses yeah Working in as little time as they as they did for the whole thing, like they must have. Uh, you have to assume that most of these were recorded like essentially live in the studio. Yeah, you know, just there wouldn't have been time to do much else. And I wonder, I wonder how many of them they. I guess I'd be curious when they actually wrote these songs, when they yeah. found time to to write them. Yeah, and I mean a number of them are traditional yeah. songs, but but I just I love some of the lyrics, like the. Tired of take your place at the end, son. We'll yeah. get to you one by one. Like, uh, pretty great. I'm a big fan of clockworks of destruction hanging low over our heads. Always a smokestack cloud or a slow walking death. Let's yeah, see. it's it's light. You know, no thanks <laughs> to the treadmill. Handcuffs hurt worse when you've done nothing wrong. Ferrar really comes out smiling here. Yeah. So I, this is one of the interesting things. Like. It, it turns out that Jay Farrar's voice was born to like play like protest am- anthems, yeah. like '60s protest anthems. Yeah, uh, you know, okay, like <laughs> this is a good combination of you know, man and material, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I just it. I've got to note, like, it's hilarious that he starts off singing about how much work sucks, but until you pointed it out. I had never put together that he's in doing that he's working and it on some level sucks for him. That's that that's bonus. Yeah, but I feel like if you're having a like if you're having a crappy day and you're 
you're singing a song or writing a song about how much, and this is from someone who's never written a song in their life, about how much work stuff, you get like a little extra fuel to yeah. that to that argument. Yes, totally agree. That uh, I don't know. Yeah, there's just there's there's you know going back to the instrument instrumentation. I another like delicate thing I love with this song is the way the acoustic parts play off of each other, you know, and they're like, there's two guitars going and you can just hear them go from strumming to playing these little lines that like weave into each other and then they cut out then they pick back and, you know, and the, you know, what you were talking about with like the adaptation of the stop start turning into like, we slow it down, we speed it up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's not as, it doesn't have the same, impact as it, as it does with the volume just because it you know, I think you have to pay a little more attention to get it but yeah. it, it really it, it really works at least on these songs yeah I think it you know you feel it in your brain even if you don't feel it in the in your guts yeah and I mean it feels like a really good a really well produced version of just some guys getting together and working out some material yeah yeah you know like you compare the acoustic songs on still feel gone you know where i was just railing about like that those sound like some weird acoustic thing grown in a lab and this just sounds like talented dudes in a room i don't know like like there's this organic feeling to it that bach manages to catch that just really like this album would be crap without it and like thank god he has it it's almost like you're listening to you're listening to them play in like your living room or something. Yeah, like it's you can really hear the sounds of the instruments. And, yeah, and like I don't know this when you sometimes when you get stuff that's that's a little more produced, it's got kind of a a more artificial sound to it. Yeah, and this sounds really it just it sounds really genuine to me. Yeah, totally agree. And it it's cool too that. You know, everything that's ornate here is just kind of in the way it's put together. Like, the uh, the only complicated thing about this song is the timing. Like, the, the, the chords, you know, I've talked a bunch about Uncle Tupelo songs just being like, if you make the basic open chords and fuck around with them slightly, you get an Uncle Tupelo song. And this is another one of the, like, big exhibits of that. It's just a C chord with a finger added on, and then an F chord with a finger added on, and a D... And, you know, it's just it, it. It's like it's like Italian cooking with like really simple ingredients that you don't do much. You, know, you don't change them much. You just put them together really well. Yeah, or like a or like a Bob Dylan song where like the guitar part might be really basic, but the way his voice kind of modulates around words, it makes it. Yeah, it just makes it really unique. Yeah, even though it's not that part of it, probably isn't like super technically proficient. Yeah, I guess your your counter example is like. Uh, it's like having a really, really good guitarist that plays, uh, that tries to sing as well. And you're like, yeah, don't do that. I don't think so. See Clapton, comma Eric. Wow. No, no snow, no show. Man. <laughs> Another thing that just needs to be noted with this song too. Um, I've heard a couple of different live versions of this. Uh, like, uh, there's one on that Mississippi Nights show that's everywhere. Like, this song is just a banger live. It's, it's different. It's like really sped up and, you know, just kind of wall of sound, but it really works. Yeah. It's uh, now I, I, because I said that, now I've got Leo Kaki in my head of like, <laughs> another 
prime grade A plus plus example. Where it's like it's like oh, this guitar playing is fantastic, and then he starts to sing, and you're like. Oh my God! Can we go back to the guitar? <laughs> All you need to know with any album of his, you know, like if it's worth getting or not, is does he sing or doesn't he? God, it is astonishing. Um, so okay, here's a thing to mention. Um, when when we first started out, I kept saying like they were always really good at sequencing. They were always really good at knowing how to start their albums out well and then like keep the sequencing up. When we bogged down in the middle of Still Feel Gone, that, that made me rethink that. Like maybe they're just good at starting an album and knowing which songs to put first. Um, I don't know which of those theories this song proves. Like it's definitely a great way to kick the album off. I'm actually kind of curious as we go through to see like, well, is the does the whole album feel well sequenced or is it just like put the good shit up front and then let you coast? Well, I think one of the problems with Still Feel Gone is that just the material in the middle is maybe not as strong as yeah as it could be. So it's like it's like how do you sequence something that's it's maybe an inferior product? Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean so far so good, yeah. right? Let's keep the keep the sequencing eyes out. Um, I don't know. I don't have, I mean, like I yeah. love the song, but I, <laughs> there's a point where you just run out of different, run out of ways to say, yeah, it's great. No, it's great. No, really. It's great. So yeah. So maybe we just move on to, to talking about coal mining. Let's do it. Coal miner, I'm sure I wish you well. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, this is a weird song. So I don't know if you uh, if you took a look at the at the and I don't know how this got through the Wikipedia filter, but uh, some guy named Nick Six of a band called Dazzling Kilman uh, <laughs> took a pretty good shot at Jay Farrar in the like Wikipedia article. <laughs> what did he say? And so, and it's kind of funny. He said, "We would occasionally imitate Jay's singing and insert our own words." It gets real hot working down at my mom's bookstore. That I, I think that is actually from the Cot book. Oh, is it? Because I, I I always remember that was like my favorite scene from that book. <laughs> and it says, "It was just a little too much to hear these songs about coal miners coming from regular dudes that worked in record stores and bought SST records and went to black flag shows." Yeah, which uh, fair criticism. I think that's a legit criticism. That that kind of thing, like the whole time through the first two albums, when I would be like, oh, I don't know, these guys are, you know, they're singing about working at the factory belt. But if they ever worked at the factory belt, like that incident was kind of what was driving me there. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's just kind of, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a full frontal assault to kind of. Jay Farrar's ethos. Well, and it makes you wonder how he took that, I guess, if it was ever to his face. I'm going to guess not well, would be yeah. my guess, but I I don't know. Yeah. But I did some, so I did some Googling about the song uh, and kind of tried to find the earliest version I could. Okay. Um, I don't know if you did the same thing. No. 
But the earliest version of this song, which was originally called Come All You Coal Miners, mm-hmm. was by uh, Sarah Ogan Gunning, um, a singer, singer-songwriter from Kentucky, okay. coal country, in 1937. This goes that far back. Yeah. That so, makes sense. So they kind of, it seems like they maybe changed the perspective because her version is from the perspective of a coal miner's wife. Oh, really? Yeah. So her verse is. I am a coal miner's wife. I'm sure I wish you well. Huh. So, but I mean, it's it, just looking through the different versions, it looks like that's a pretty common thing that people did was sort of switch that. Okay. Um, back and forth. Yeah. There's also a Bella Fleck version. Oh, how is that? Yeah, it's fine. I, Bella Fleck. No, that, that, that's awesome that you traced that back. Like, I. I'm much lazier. I, I went far enough back to know that they credit it as traditional um, when the actual author is known, which is shitty. Um, yeah, so what's the what's the benefit of that for them? Well, I it's, mean, not, it's not a songwriting credit thing, is it? Would they have to? Because if it's in 37, it's probably in the public domain, right? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I mean, like, realistically, so I do know that, like, this and a couple other songs were all on this one compilation album, a folk compilation album that they were listening to and covered a bunch of songs off of it. Um, And probably we're just lazy about looking up attribution would be my guess. I mean, like, I I don't think they would intentionally try to screw the estate of Sarah Ogan. What? Gunning. You know, I I don't think they're, like, out to Probably not. But probably more difficult in the early nineties too to trace back the the lineage of a song. Yeah. You know, like you're well, and they specifically weren't making money off weren't making any money off of this anyway. So like Yeah, I suppose you know, it's like why do we bother? I don't know. May I might be totally wrong, but that's my that's my speculation. It's just kinda it's the so the perspective shifting is interesting because there's a song later on the album called uh, Lily Shull. Yeah. And then on one of the Sunbolt records, I think hmm. Jay Farrar's wife wrote a version of that song from the other perspective. That's yeah. That is a good catch. So it's not their first uh the first attempt at, at kind of shifting the shifting the perspective of something. I feel like that's so I don't think that's exactly what they're doing here, but there I, I feel like this thing has changed lately that I want to run by you. That yeah. like when we were younger, if a song was like if there was a clear gender in the point of view of a song, I feel like a um musicians would usually flip the gender to match their own. Uh you know, and and to make it hetero matching their own. Um and I feel like that uh, you know, at least in the the musical world that we're in. I feel like to like David Bowie. Well, yeah, and he was probably a big part of of blowing that down. Like I feel like that's just nobody bothers with that now. And you know, men will sing songs from the point of view of a woman without changing anything. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just I, I I think it's awesome that like no one gives a shit about like oh am I am I sounding girly or am I sounding gay? Like just sing the song and be whoever's in the song. So this ends with me telling you about my dream to sing the Loretta Lynn song, The Pill, at karaoke sometime. <laughs> you need to do that. I, I feel like it's a great song. It is a great song. I love how Loretta, like every Loretta Lynn song is just 
she's really mad about something. Yeah, this city. Yeah. Who can't, uh, you know, like, who can't, uh, who, who who hasn't wanted to take somebody to Fist City at some point? <laughs> I commute to Fist City yeah. every day. Uh, you know, so we haven't really, uh, we haven't talked about the song as a song so much. Yeah. Uh, let's loop back to that. I think this is a weird song. Like, I don't hate it, but I I like it more for a few individual lines than I like it as, like, a listening experience. You know, like, it's not, I don't know, like, Grindstone is has kind of this drive to it, and then you pivot into this, and it, it's not, like, it's not bad, but it's this, like, slowdown, and, like, all the moving parts that were there with Grindstone are just gone, and, you know, there's just, like, it's just Jay and a guitar, and that's it. I mean, have we ruled out the possibility that you just don't like Bulldog Gravy? That okay. When I said there were lines I loved, that is <laughs> my three favorite lines are um, the one about old beans, bulldog gravy, and cornbread, and then the two separate callouts to that dirty capitalist system. Sink it to the darkest pits of hell. I actually had to Google bulldog gravy what? to to figure out what it was because I I I had no idea. So yeah, what is bulldog gravy? It's and if this sounds like I'm reading a definition, it's because I am. Uh, it's a Great Depression era foodstuff associated with coal miners, a mixture of water, flour, and grease, mm. eaten with beans or over bread soaked in lard and water. Also called monkey gravy. Bulldog gravy is a better name. Bulldog gravy gives it a little more grit. I feel yeah. like like you really I'm going down to the mine with my bulldog gravy. Gonna have some bulldog gravy, cornbread. So I wonder, like the definition that you read there, like matches this line so much that I wonder if that definition was influenced by the song, or if just the reality that they're describing is so specific that they both wound up the same. I would guess if you could go back and and like like establish search engine intent <laughs> like the number of searches for bulldog gravy if you correlated that with <laughs> people that have listened to this uncle tupelo record yeah. i think you'd see i think you'd see a lot of uh you'd see a high correlation i, I believe you're correct uh i don't know i just it's kind of when, when i first heard this like i was kind of drifting i think i was a sophomore or a junior in college when i heard this and like my i was like performatively communist then i guess like i i really i really wanted to like freak out the squares with my commie ways i don't but like as i kind of grew out of that and into like i don't know being like far left but thinking about it some more i was pretty excited that there was like you know this song that just like has it in for capitalism and it's gonna like take it down yeah, and I mean, I think if you, if you, I guess I don't know how much the conditions in coal mining have improved. I'm guessing not as much as they should have, but I'm guessing like, you know, if you are an actual coal miner during this era, like you probably have a pretty grim view of capitalism and also society. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, just look at how many, I don't think any other profession has inspired as many like great songs about how shitty it is as coal mining. Like, I don't think it's even close. I don't, 
You know, like as like the great angry coal miner songs go. This one's pretty good, but it's not even top tier. Like you've got uh, you got sixteen tons. You got dark as a dungeon. Uh, coal miner's daughter. You know, just like everybody. I think it seems like there's a period in time where like if you were in music, you just had to like weigh in on how much coal mining sucked. Well, I think it's part of it's just that the era where or the area where a lot of the folk and country music was being recorded. Yeah is the sort of like coal country. Yeah. And so it's, it's topical. It's a weird thing. So like, I suppose when these songs were received, you know, when they were written, they would have been received in a totally different space. You know, like now it it's honestly, it's like, you know, I mean, we're a couple of graduate educated office workers listening to these songs about coal mining and, you know, I'm like, yeah, we, we, we can empathize, but like if you're sitting in the company town and someone's playing this in the town square, that's a different experience. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's not dissimilar from, you know, like Bruce Springsteen, a, a multimillionaire singing about the working man's yeah. or working class man's plight. Yeah. Like it can, it can still be applicable to your life. Yeah. I, <laughs> I guess I, well, basically I'm, I'm still feeling the shame of being Jay Farrar singing about, you know, I'm worried someone's going to be singing about how cold it is to work in your mom's bookstore (laughs) (laughs) is what it comes down to. Uh, Sometimes that's a, sometimes that's a function of just being a good artist is that people are looking for a kind of a petty put down to, to hurl at you. Yes. I actually think reading this song is, is kind of like a, like a condensed version of reading like the jungle. Yeah. Like the uh, Upton Sinclair book about the meatpacking industry where yeah. it's like, you know, it's sort of, it's just really telling like by reading it, you're like, wow, that's yeah. does not sound like a good place to be. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I wonder in the depression, this would be, this would be a good research project. Like, so we we know there's this body of like shitty coal mining jobs that you know talked about how terrible it is. Were there other jobs that also had like, you know, I mean, there have to have been a lot of shitty jobs that other people did. I mean, I think railroad working on the railroad. There's yeah. a lot of there's uh, I think anytime you're working, well, you know, I guess a, another good example. There probably is like the uh, maybe it's just because I got back from the East Coast, but kind of the like the child labor weaving weaving communities in Lowell, Massachusetts, where yeah. they would like they had these mills where people where kids were working like fourteen hour days. That uh yeah, that sounds right for a folk song. That seems seems unpleasant. Yeah. So just talking about folk songs in general, like do you think why why do you think this is on the album? Do you think this is here because they loved it or because Jay loved it or just to give everything some folk cred? I think because it's it's totally in Ferrar's wheelhouse. Yeah, it is. And I think he, you know, for better or worse, he likes singing about injustice. And yes, he does. He likes he likes songs that are that kind of highlight, you know, the haves and have nots, and that's I I think you know, for this it, it would be like uh it'd be like somebody that quit smoking if you just <laughs> if you just backed up a van full of cigarettes to their house. They're like, oh, (laughs) it's like found loot. Yeah. (laughs) 
getting into the sequencing question, I guess like in the end for me, like I just kind of like, I appreciate some things about this song. I think it's kind of interesting, but I don't feel like a love for it in my heart the way I do some other things. Like I don't have a beef with this song, but I just, I feel like it's main function. Like, like for me, aesthetically, it's main function is to just give you a little bit of emotional breathing space in between grindstone and then wait up. What if I, what if we called it, come all you clean coal miners? <laughs> well, then it would be an exciting, it would be an exciting arrow pointing to America's future. I mean, I don't think we can discount the fact that you worked in a nuclear power plant and this, you maybe you view coal as a competition. <laughs> exactly. I was coming to take my job. My, my nuclear power plant is closed now. Coal one. Holy shit. Yeah. Coal one. <sighs> I, I, I'm heartbroken. I mean, I, I feel like you could rework it from the point of a nuclear power plant employee. Well, the best in the entire run, uh, continuing run of The Simpsons, the best episode is the one about the labor strike at the power plant. Have you seen that one? I don't think so. Is oh. that a different one from where the Germans take over the power it plant? It is a different one. It, uh, I guess I don't want to park the show here to yeah. like tell you about a Simpsons episode, but it is, man, that, that is that show at its best. And like, like, and I saw that about the same time I saw this. And so like the same way that with this song, you know, like railing against capitalism, that episode, I was like, yeah. Um, Lisa writes a folk song about the workers at the nuclear power plant. Fantastic. I'll have to check it out. It is some great shit. Uh, anything else on coal miners? Just just one thing. What when do you, you get? When you Google uh, coal miner Uncle Tupelo, it, uh, it comes up with a list of, or at least for me, it came up with a list of pro-union and pro-anti-war songs. Okay. So, I mean, I... I guess I, I just think it's kind of amusing that somebody somebody assembled a list of pro-union songs. Did you happen to see like where that list, like who was hosting that? List? I, I didn't, but I I feel like that's like like that's somebody's job is to like catalog this. Like yeah. we're we're gonna have a union rally. We got to make sure we got the right curated <laughs> set of folk songs. Well, that I, that reminds me of like one of my. F- favorite dumb things that I've ever seen on the internet. And I guess like there are people for whom this isn't dumb and I'm Is it the conservative Wikipedia? No, it's the flip side of that. That's there was there was a time when uh I was just obsessed with going to the Maoist International (laughs) Movement's website. Uh, and they had all these culture pages and they would just like you know talk about pop culture from the Maoist perspective. And uh you know so like I guess to, to, to put this all into context, like I would say I'm a democratic socialist. Um, Maoism seems, you know, pretty, uh, doesn't seem a lot of fun, I guess. Um, the Maoist international movement, definitely that webpage convinced me there was like, there was a limit to how far left I wanted to go and how like tight I wanted to, how much ideology needed to like define everything because you know, they would like, I don't remember what movies, whatever movies were out 2003 ish, four ish, you know, they would like review new releases from the Maoist perspective. And it, it, it would always be like, well, 
you know, this is a movie about cops and sure the cops show individual bravery, but cops are just a tool of a, I can't go far enough over the top to make it sound as fun. Like they have this gear of dogmatism that I just can't get into to relate. It's kind of like the difference between being fun, crazy and like crazy, crazy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I can remember with clarity from that site, uh, and I can just remember this because it was so like hilariously hypocritical. Um, they loved Rage Against the Machine, you know, and all of their reviews were like, yes, Rage Against the Machine does work for an evil corporation and, you know, their profits go to the label, which is owned by a transnational, but they want to smash capitalism, so they're okay. Well, as the only person at this table, I believe, who has seen Rage Against the Machine in concert, I feel like this is sort of my wheelhouse. Yeah, you have more Maoist cred than I do. That's right. Although I think, I don't know, it was a double bill of Cypress Hill and Rage Against the Machine, so I don't know if I give back some of the... <laughs> I don't think the Maoists thought much of Cypress Hill. I think they thought they were tools of the oppressor. I'm going to get, I, I hope I get some shit from Maoists on Twitter for this. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I hope you do, too, just out of spite. But I, I feel like that's you know, trying trying to argue <laughs> with the international Maoist uh, Twitter account is going to be sort of an exercise in futility for you. That's, I, nothing would be more 2019 than to get into a Twitter fight with Maoists. That, that would be something. <laughs> Bring it on. back uh ready to talk wait up after after talking through maoism on the on the break um wait up man hell yeah it's really i mean it's one of those things where like it's really amazing what you can do with just like essentially just like jeff tweedy yeah like just you know really quiet but I mean, again, messing with the tempo so that it, it's really gripping. Yeah. Like, I, I love the, like, I don't know if he's finger-picking the guitar yep. or, or if he's, but it's like, it sets this, like, okay, it sets kind of your expectation for the song, and then it just sort of, it kind of just sort of mind bends through the... Well, you get Peter Buck coming in to play some feedback, like his one instrumental appearance on the album, and it's perfect. Yeah, he does a, he does a great job. Yeah, no, with with the finger picking, like, I think this is, so I, I think I've talked before about I taught myself to play guitar playing Uncle Tupelo songs, and uh, this is the one where just I taught myself to finger pick playing this, because that, you know, that's just, that, you have to do that to play it, and it, it's just so satisfying to do. And again, like, it's just, the whole song is just an A chord with a little bit of finger movement, and then a D chord, and... You don't need much. Yeah, it, it just I feel like I could learn to play those two chords perfectly and never accomplish something like this. I I disagree. I think like I I think you could you could play this song. I could have you playing this song in 20 minutes. There's it it's actually it's there's very little going on here. It just sounds they it just they're so good with the simple parts that it sounds like a lot more than it is. If that's true, I'm just going to call you 
every day after you teach me how to do that and just play this. <laughs> but I'm just going to say, are you surprised it's me? And then I'm going to hang up. Okay. Um, Thoughts? Yeah, actually, I do have a thought. Um, you don't know the sort of Damocles that was hanging over your head for years between um, the space when my cat Jones was still alive and I had an iPhone and knew you had an iPhone, I basically would daily get this weird urge to send you a FaceTime request and then just hold the phone in front of the cat. And, but I always thought, like, that would be too annoying. I don't want to abuse the telephone. <laughs> Your discretion is noted. <laughs> yeah. You know, is this like a subtle way that you're like cashing in a marker that I shouldn't call? Exactly. I'm saying like you you, just, you don't know. I mean, maybe it won't be the same verse each time. It'll just be a different verse, but one verse from this song each day. Fair enough. So yeah. that's a three-day rotation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the variety. Um. Well, so talking about the simplicity of this song, one thing that jumped out at me, like I had always had this... Just from casual listening, I always had this filed away as it's just a finger-picked guitar and then the feedback. Then when I was listening to do my prep here, it's actually, there is more going on here. Again, it's just, it's so well-produced that you don't really notice. But uh, the guitar is doing most of the work, but a banjo and the drum part kind of fill out the sound and like really give it the... Most of the swing that you hear is actually from those two instruments. Um, you know, again, like Peter Buck can just put pieces together in you know, this way that's just flawless and like seamless. Um, I believe it's Brian Henneman playing banjo. So he's, is this the album that he learned to play the mandolin for? Yes. What a trooper that guy is. And according to you know, Wikipedia claims the, uh, the mandolin he's playing is the one buck used in losing my religion. So that, that, that's a heavy mando. I just, but that's, yeah, I, I have some complicated thoughts about that song, uh, just because I, I I feel like the the video of for losing my religion just annoyed the shit out of me. Yeah, that that was when my REM super fandom began to nose down. Tale for another day. Yeah, um, I don't know for sure. So I usually go to discogs.org to like try and get liner notesy stuff. It doesn't say who's playing the guitar part, but I've always assumed it was Tweedy. So I don't know if Jay Farrar is even present on this song. You know, there's only one guitar. It's entirely possible that he was just off drinking coffee when they recorded this. Yeah, and maybe the maybe the fissures were starting to, to form. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of interesting because the previous song was clearly just him. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that, though, is probably just the stripped-down kind of nature of what they're doing yeah it's probably not for all the subtlety i think if you had two if you had two really powerful instrument instrumentalists i think it might overpower the i guess the song sandusky maybe maybe is a counterpoint to that ar- argument but. well but even then that's like nobody i don't know if anyone plays a chord in sandusky you know it's all just like single string parts to like let it work so delicately. And yeah, this one is chords and you know, more guitars would give you just too much stuff. I also, if we're talking about the sound here, I am confident 
that this song works to define the absolute bottom of Jeff Tweedy's vocal range. <laughs> I was wondering if he like if he was because he always jokes that what's that song on AM dash seven? Yeah, that that they slowed the tape yeah, down to uh, so that his right. voice would be lower because he. I, this is just going to prove that I've been to way too many Wilco shows, <laughs> but like, and, and somehow, despite the fact that that you see most of the same people at Wilco shows, they never, a lot of them never got the hint that Jeff Tweedy hates it when you yell out songs <laughs> yeah. while he's on the stage. Like it, it makes him visibly upset. Yeah. But it, it was, I just remember one show where he's, he's tuning his guitar and people are yelling and they're like, you know, like yelling songs at him. He's like, yep, play that one. We'll get to that one. And then somebody yells dash seven. And he goes, Nope. <laughs> he goes, I can't sing that low. We slowed the tape down. Like you'll never hear that song perform live. <laughs> I think he historically has been at his best, like when he's you know, like kind of with a few barbs, but mostly good naturedly fighting the crowd. Like that, that that's kind of his prime spot, I think. Yeah, and it it just it, it never ceases to amaze me how like we all know he hates that. Yeah. You know, like for a while we were all you know maybe still we're all really big fans of his. But never never stops anybody uh, from yelling. It's a way to get, you know, get a sliver of attention from, you know, him telling you to go fuck yourself is still him giving you a little bit of attention. I I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Human psychology is weird is my point, I guess. I mean, so if somebody was yelling out Sunvolt songs like <laughs> that, I would appreciate because like, you know, that's, you know, like that's a pretty, that's a kind of a nuanced dig yeah. at him. If you're well, one of the weirdest Tweety audience interactions that I, I think this is on a golden smog bootleg where he like parks the show. Maybe it's a Wilco show. I can't remember, but he parks the show to yell at a guy (laughs) in the crowd. Who's like wearing a Sunvolt t-shirt and looking at him funny. And like, yeah, he's got that tone in his voice where he might be joking and he might not. And so, so likely he's mostly joking, (laughs) but there's still an ounce of truth. Yeah. I just, uh, and I think actually we already talked about this, but but uh, reading the reading that uh, book on on Jeff Tweedy about the uh, maybe it was I'm not sure which it was in, but about where they all were in a van and they were listening to Trace, yeah, and they all wanted to hate it and they yeah. listened to it straight through and then just threw it out the window because yeah. it was so good. <sighs> I mean, if you're if if you're Jay Farrar, you're that that's like a that's like a home run. Yeah. Like, okay, take your best shot at it. Bulletproof. <laughs> your move. Uh, well, getting back to Wait Up. I actually, I feel like this song, so I, I thought Gun, you know, Gun is a great song, but Gun is like it, its own weird thing. Like, you know, it's like this weird, it's perfect in a one-off way. I feel like Wait Up is like, the beginning of this like golden age of Jeff Tweedy writing really good songs that are really like simple, direct statements of just how he feels. He got away from that eventually, but you know, from this song through 
I don't know, a ghost is born. Like that was just what he was really good at. Yeah, he's just he's really good at he's really good at writing songs that sound good either yeah. because of or in spite of their simplicity. I I think it's because of. I you know like it's this weird thing where like what I I think what this song does really well is conveys the emotional state of a guy who's traveling and misses some people that are at home, you know, and like it 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 puts you in that mindset with just you know, I don't know if there are 20 lines in the song if you tote them all up but you know you that's the thing with poetry you don't need that much to convey an emotion like he's really just hitting it well here yes i think you maybe hit on it there is that like he's he's able to he's able to convey his emotions i think just the way his his voice moves yeah uh you know farrar kind of does it through like lyrical stylings yeah um, and he has an awesome voice too, but but I think Tweedy does a really good job of 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 kind of I don't know if he's I don't know if he's even conscious that he's doing this, but like just singing words. So there's like a there's like a little bit of like frailty to yeah. him. So it really adds kind of that feeling to the words. Yeah, there's there's the thing in his book. He says I don't remember who he says said this to him, but he talks about someone telling him, you always sound desperate when you sing and you need to keep doing that because that, that works for you. And like, that's, you know, yeah, that, that like frailty of like, you know, I'm out here on the edge. I don't know if I can sing this and I don't know how I feel about what I'm saying, but I'm, you know, I don't know how I feel about letting the world know about the things I'm singing about. I I don't know. It just, it hits this like perfect, yeah, there's like a vulnerability to it, kind of. Yeah. And that's in such contrast to Jay Farrar, who is kind of like an emotional porcupine. <laughs> or at least that's the way he reads, you know, through his art. Maybe if you know him, he's completely different. I don't sense that I'm ever going to get the chance to meet him to to discuss that. Yeah. But, I mean, I think part of, part of, for me at least, for Jay Farrar, is that his voice is powerful in a different way yeah and just the juxtaposition but the way he looks and the way he sounds never not gonna be weird yeah and it, there's like the and i know we've talked about this but there's like whenever you see him perform live there's that like hint where he catches your eye from underneath those bangs and yeah. you're like it's like he's i don't know he just is a very in he looks he seems to be a very intense man that is my impression so talking about him and emotional vulnerability, am I remembering it right that he, maybe I've got my bands mixed up. I was going to say that I thought that he fired the Boquist brothers from Sunvolt by fax. <laughs> but I, I think that was something that happened in the Jayhawks. I, I, I think they just like, I think, I think he did or, ghost them though, right? Because I think so. Didn't he just start recording with another group of musicians? Yeah. Still not like, not great emotional presence there. We should just run down the street and ask uh, Tim O'Regan. Well, that's, I yeah, I think the guy who got fired by fax was Tim O'Regan's predecessor. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, probably not not the best to bring that up. Don't, I, I guess for context here, I actually, I live down the block from um, the Jayhawks drummer. And I've lived here for... 13 years and have never actually acknowledged to him that I'm a fan. And so I feel like the 
the window for doing that without it being really socially weird, you know, closed maybe 11 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's that. Oh, <laughs> getting back to wait up. Oh, also, one other thing, just talking about the words of the song, I think an interesting thing here, a lot of times with both guys' songs, to this point, we have like called out individual lines or, you know, or couplets and been like, this is great, this is great. This song, there to me, there's like no line or no set of lines that, that stands out. It's like the the words work really well as a whole, even though none of them on their own are like, holy shit, that's, that's wordsmithing. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the, the sum exceeds the parts. It's the same as the production of the whole album. Really. We're just like, you take simple things, you put them together. Well, you get a superlative result. Sometimes it's hard to talk about the songs that are so good because you don't want to just sit there and. Yeah, I, I always fight that urge to just kind of geek out about it as a fan, yeah. um, which which is probably not particularly useful. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's a really good song. It is. I, I feel like it's. Uh, I feel like, you know, I I think I like coal coal miner better than you, um, but I think we agree two at least two out of the three songs are really solid. Yeah. You know, you come out of the gate with like, yeah, if two out of the three are Pantheon level songs, you're doing all right. Which is like a kind of, it's like a meatloaf line, right? Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Again with the meatloaf. Love meatloaf. Mr. Loaf. Is he still alive? I think so. Is he, is he touring on cruise ships? You, you know he has to be yeah. like either cruise ships or the casino circuit. Oh my God. Okay. That really, I just talking about that reminded me of something terrible. Um, maybe it's not terrible, I don't know. But so, do you follow Brian Henneman on Instagram? I by, do not, by any like random. I started like, I guess, when we started talking about him so much on the show, I guess I was like, Oh, Brian Henneman, it's on Instagram, huh? And so, last episode, we started talking about cruise ship, you know, musicians on cruises, and I was like, Oh, god, that's terrible. Within a fucking day. <laughs> Brian Henneman posts a picture to Instagram of himself on a cruise ship. The time the bottle rockets were like a featured act on an outlaw country cruise. And I mean, but I mean, like, I don't know, like it's easy for me to say like, yeah, that's stupid. But if you're him and someone's like, Hey, come along on a cruise. We'll pay your band. I I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm jaded a little bit because I'm thinking about the type of people that would go on an outlaw country cruise. I know. And so like, I I just, I feel like you'd have a crisis of faith while you're playing. You're like, these are my fans. Yeah. Oh man. So is there any band <laughs> there any, it, we won't even talk about concepts, individual band. Is there any band you would go on a cruise to see? Like, I can't see them unless I'm on a cruise? <laughs> sure, we'll say that. Like, living or dead, or do they have to be a, alive? They have to be alive now. Because, like, you know, like, if, if I if I could go see, like, Jimi Hendrix on a, on a cruise ship, like, <laughs> yeah. I'd go on the cruise ship. Well, sure. 
I don't know. I can't think of any. Yeah. I can't think of. But part of it is that to me, being on a cruise ship sounds totally miserable. So, yeah. like, like there's no. I don't know. I, I think the band plays for an hour or two, and then I'm stuck on the <laughs> stuck on the fucking boat for another five days. <laughs> but you can hang out with the band up on the Lido deck. I don't know. This is like so. Like I get to go down the water slide with Frank Black or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like a good way to learn to hate your favorite band. <laughs> I don't know. I, I cannot think, I cannot, to answer your question, I cannot think of a, a musical act that I would that, that I would pay real money to oh, go on a cruise. God, to. I didn't so, even think about that. You're, you're, you're down a couple grand to... Is that how much it costs going on a cruise? It, it's in the thousands. I just assumed they paid you. <laughs> if you're Brian Henneman, yeah. I don't know. Um... We're way away from weight up. I feel like this is my role is just to derail, <laughs> just to derail all legitimate conversation. Fair enough. Uh, anything else on the on the song? I don't think so. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap her up. I'm gonna congratulate myself. We've gotten this far, and I have not derailed us into the Beastie Boys. So that's, that's good work. Props to me. The whack MCs get by on another night. Um, thank you for listening to the show. I am uh, I'm Keith Pilly. I'm on Twitter at at Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And I'm at Twitter. I'm at Twitter. You're at and Twitter. on Twitter at Cook6252. We uh we would love to hear from you if you if there's anything we said tonight that you like or don't like. Uh, you're a pissed off Maoist. Um I'd like to point out if you want some cruise ship enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, you're Brian Henneman. Um if you want some hot Beastie Boys content, my, my Twitter feed is full of that right now. Um, if you dug the show, please tell people or go to iTunes or Google Play and leave a review or rate us. That helps us be found, and then we can piss off more people. Uh, and quick squib here, if you are into art or architecture, you should know that my other show, Art Pal, is getting pretty close to dropping another season. Uh, so, again, keep an eye on my Twitter feed for that if you're interested. I have no other project. <laughs> right on. Uh, adios. Yes.